Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Crime Vine Podcast. I am your host, Felicity Brooke, and if you are new here, basically this is a true crime and occasionally conspiracy theory podcast. I like to stick with cases that aren't as widely known across the globe. I feel like every case is just as important as the next, and if I am that person that is able to give these victims and their families a voice and to be heard across the world, then I am going to do that. Now, before we get into this episode, I have so much to discuss with you guys, so I hope this intro doesn't get too long. So first, I'm going to start off with where I have been. I have kind of just disappeared off the face of the earth in January, like late January. No Instagram, no Twitter, like occasionally here and there I'll be on there, but other than that, like kind of just disappeared. So let me tell you, 2020 has been a wild, wild ride, and I really thought this was going to be my year, as probably everybody else did, but it is turning out to be completely different. So a lot has happened in my personal life, like a lot. I way too much to even get into. But basically, I thought I was going to be moving across the country to the West Coast. And um, well, that got pushed back. And then the whole coronavirus thing happened. And so it's safe to say that I won't be moving for a while if I even decide to move there. There's so much has happened. It's just a lot's going on. Um, And I've been working insane hours because I'm considered an essential worker, too. So it has been so difficult to find time and the energy and motivation to do the podcast. I know there's just so much going on right now, but with this all going on, I want to make sure I produce more episodes than ever before because I want to make sure you guys aren't bored out of your minds. And I I have a little extra time to research instead of using all my sound time to just like sleep. I will do some research for you guys. Also, now with all that being said, I am going to give you guys a case update. Um, I don't know if you guys watched, or not watched, but listened to the episode of the Taylor Rose Williams case. I posted it in um, December, and there has been an update. There's been an update since March. Um, It's kind of actually been an update since January, but the full update happened in March and everything. So if you guys have not listened to that episode yet, you can go ahead and completely just skip this update and then come back to it once you guys listen to that episode. But let's get into the update real quick. So Brianna Williams, which is the mother of Taylor Rose Williams, is now charged with aggravated child abuse and tampering with evidence. These charges were added to the two counts of child neglect and one count of lying to law enforcement that Brianna was already facing. The new aggravated child abuse charge against Brianna the U.S. Navy Petty Officer uh, did willfully torture and maliciously punish or willfully cage a child. And the new tampering charge states she destroyed or removed evidence and did transport human remains with the purpose of impairing an investigation, says the state attorney's office. Prosecutors released evidence against Williams showing that she returned to Jacksonville from Linden, Alabama, six hours before placing a Craigslist ad asking for help to move out of her apartment. Investigators later searched that apartment after Williams reported her daughter missing from the Brentwood home where she moved. According to records, they found possible blood stains in six locations in the apartment. Soiled children's clothes, fecal matter, cans of soup with small openings in them, and a scent of decay. The same scent was noticeable in the trunk of Williams' Honda Accord, records show. The trunk was empty, but a rubber liner inside smelled of cleaning fluid. Cadaver dogs picked up the scent of decomposition in the trunk and the driver's compartment. According to records, dead maggots, fecal matter, soiled clothes, and assorted sex toys were also recovered from the car. Three days after the move, Williams called police to report her daughter missing, 
think he woke up and the back door was open and Taylor was gone. So that's all of the update that I have for you guys in case you guys were interested. Now that we've got all that taken care of, let's move on to the case that this episode is actually about. This one is a wild case. It's, it's not your typical true crime case, but it is definitely an interesting one, and I thought I'd share it with you guys. So if you guys don't already, grab yourselves a drink, because this vine will rope you in. On April 22, 1964, Chester and Dora Franzak gave birth to a beautiful and healthy baby boy at the Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago. Both Chester and Dora were over the moon with their new baby boy, both so happy and so in love with him. Dora would hold Paul every chance she got, and when she wasn't with Paul, he was in the nursery with the other babies. The next morning, Dora was feeding Paul early in the morning when a nurse came in and told Dora she needed to take Paul for some testing and she would bring him right back. Of course, Dora didn't think much of this. She was in a hospital full of nurses and doctors. She was not going to think this person wasn't really a nurse. So Dora handed Paul over to the nurse. About 20 minutes later, a real nurse walked into the room and told Dora she needed to take Paul for some testing. Dora was so confused because the nurse was just in the room 20 minutes prior saying the same thing. It was at this moment that they knew Paul was missing. They immediately contacted the authorities. This would become Chicago's biggest manhunt in history, involving 175,000 postal workers, 200 police officers, and the FBI. They had searched 600 homes by midnight, but nothing would come of this. Dora and Chester stayed in the hospital for a week after the kidnapping, waiting for news. Unfortunately, they never received any. Once they left the hospital, they were hounded by the press. Despite all the publicity, there were no credible leads. It was in the newspaper headline, Baby Stolen at Hospital. Everyone in Chicago at the time knew there was a missing baby. From Dora's description, they were looking for a woman in her mid to late 30s to 40s about 5'4 and 140 pounds. She had very close-set brown eyes. They did not find any answers or leads as to where this woman and the baby went. The case, as it normally does, just kind of runs cold for a while. Chester and Dora try to make their lives as normal as possible while still remaining hopeful for answers. About two years later, in July 1965, an abandoned toddler was found in a stroller outside of a department store in New Jersey. No one made a connection to the Fonzacks right away, and the little boy was then placed in the foster system. He then gets placed with a family called the Eckerts. The Eckerts were very fond of this little boy, and they even baptized him. At his baptism, they named him Scott McKinley. Scott was with the Eckerts for many months, and they were actually getting very close to adopting him. Before they began the adoption process, a New Jersey police officer had the feeling that Scott could be the missing baby, Paul, from Chicago. Their ages matched up, and given the circumstances, it looked like it could be a very viable possibility. So they decided to investigate the two cases to see if this was in fact Paul Franzak. He contacted the FBI, and they decided to start their own investigation. This wasn't going to be an easy investigation. There wasn't much evidence to go off of. The hospital never got the chance to take Paul's blood when he was born, since he was abducted. So a DNA test to match was not an option. 
but DNA testing wasn't as advanced then as it is today. There wasn't much to go on except for one single photo. The hospital had taken a photo right after Paul was born. However, this still isn't enough. Newborn baby pictures and toddler pictures don't ever look the same. They definitely had their work cut out for them. The FBI had tested 10,000 baby boys to see if they could be Paul. Scott McKinley was the only one that could not 100% be ruled out based on the shape of his ear. In 1966, the Franzaks received a letter from the FBI notifying them of their new lead and possibly leading to the homecoming of their baby boy. Within three months, the Franzaks drove out to New Jersey to meet their possible child. They met little Scott and came to the conclusion that this is in fact their missing child, Paul. So they take Scott back to Chicago and start raising him as their own. Of course, they adopted him and renamed him back to his original name of Paul Joseph Franzak. So now the case is closed and this family begins their new lives together with no problem. Or so they thought. Paul said that they were an extremely close family, that he loved and adored his parents, and he had a very happy childhood. He said his parents could be overprotective at some points, but that is completely understandable given the circumstances. Paul grew up a very normal child, and he had no idea what had happened in his early years of his life. He just thought that his parents had had him and lived their lives. He had no idea about the hospital abduction or being found on the other side of the country. When Paul was 10 years old, he did what every other child does around Christmas time. He went hunting in the basement for Christmas presents. He had pushed aside a couch to get into the crawl space, and there he found three boxes of letters sympathy cards, and newspaper clippings. One headline read, 200 search for stolen baby. Another, mother asks kidnapper to return baby. He recognized the very distraught couple in the photograph to be his parents. Then he read on that that their baby son, Paul Franzak, had been kidnapped. Of course, Paul was shocked by this, so he took the clippings and ran upstairs to Dora and asked if that was about him. At first, Dora was angry that Paul had been snooping. Then she admitted, yes, you were kidnapped, we found you, we love you, and that's all you need to know. Paul knew this was a taboo subject and not to bring it up, so he didn't for another 40 years. Of course, his curiosity was not satisfied, so when he was alone in the house, he would snoop back to the crawl space to read more. This is when he learned the next part of his story, how he was found. Dora told Paul that it felt like the world was watching her. She had two options. She could say that this child wasn't hers and have the child be put back in the system or save him from a possibly horrible life. So Dora claimed him. Paul went to a Catholic school with a really strict dress code. Paul didn't fit the stereotypical mold of a kid going to a Catholic school. He liked rock music and he liked his hair long. Dora and Paul got into a heated argument, and at one point, she told him that she wished they had never found him. Of course, this would surely stick with Paul for the rest of his life. Paul graduated high school and decided to take up the journey of being in a band. He then moved to Arizona to pursue this dream of his. Five years later, the band broke up, and Paul made his way back to Chicago. He decided to join the army for a year and moved around quite a bit. He 
he would soon find himself settling in Las Vegas, Nevada. Paul said that no matter where he would go, he always had the newspaper clippings with him. In 2008, Paul married his second wife, Michelle. They were expecting a baby girl. The doctor had asked about Paul's medical history, and that's when it all hit him. Paul has always wondered if Dora and Chester were really his parents. He had always felt like he did not fit in. His parents seemed closer to his younger brother, Dave. They were all quiet and reserved, whereas Paul liked loud music and fast motorbikes. They looked different, too. For years, Paul wanted to get DNA testing done, but he couldn't quite bring himself to do it. He didn't want to hurt his parents, but the, but the curiosity of the possibility he's not biologically related to them haunted him. DNA testing isn't cheap. The cost was unsettling to Paul. Until one day, in 2012, Paul saw over-the-counter DNA kits for sale. He bought some and took them home. The truth would soon come to light. His parents visited from Chicago, and Paul thought that this was his time to shine. An hour before they left, he worked up the courage to bring the subject up. Have you ever wondered if I'm your real son, he asked. Caught by surprise, his parents admitted that they had. Would you like to find out? Within a few minutes, everyone had swabbed their cheeks. Paul then took his parents to the airport. But by the time their plane landed, a few hours later, Dora and Chester had changed their minds. They rang Paul, asking him not to send off the kit. He was their son, and that was the end of it. Paul kept the samples in his desk for weeks, distraught and didn't know what to do. Of course, he loved his parents, and he wanted to respect their wishes. But at the same time, this was Paul's truth that he needed to find out. So he sent off the samples. He was at work when he got a phone call about the results. After answering some security questions, he was told there was no remote possibility that he was Paul Fonzak, Dora and Chester's biological son. Paul told BBC, I just felt like my life as I knew it was ended. I felt the color drain from my face, and I couldn't think. I got all sweaty. Everything I thought I knew about myself, my birthday, my medical history, being Polish, being Catholic, even being a, tur a tourist, went all out the window, and for a second, I didn't know who I was. Paul had two questions. Who are Paul's biological parents, and where who is the real Paul Fonzak? Before he had even told his parents the news, Paul called a local investigative journalist, George Knapp, to ask for help. Soon, Paul Joseph Fonzak was a national news story once again. Paul's family was furious with Paul. They asked that he didn't send the tests in, and he did. Now they have to deal with the media again. His family shunned him for over a year. You've got to understand the main reason I did this was to find my parents' real child, says Paul. They were the most amazing parents. The best gift I could give them would be to find their kidnapped child. And I thought the best way to do this was to invoke the help of the media. The FBI then reopened the Paul Franzak case. They had located 10 boxes of case files in Chicago. However, since there was now DNA proof he wasn't Paul Joseph Franzak, he wasn't able to see any of the files. He did, however, speak to one of the retired FBI agents who worked on the original case, Bernie Carey, who admitted that some of the team had not been convinced that they had found the right child. A team of volunteers who called themselves the DNA detectives took on this case free of charge. 
Led by the genetic genealogist C.C. Moore, they used a combination of DNA testing and classic investigative techniques, searching newspapers and public records, crawling through social media and endless phone interviews. Paul has been found in New Jersey, but they traced his roots all the way to Tennessee. They also found out he has some Jewish roots, with so many setbacks. It was months before they made their breakthrough. A conversation with one of Paul's potential relatives who mentioned that there were some missing twins in the family. On June 3rd, 2015, Paul got a phone call saying that his birth name was Jack. That was how he found out he was born Jack Rosenthal and that he was six months older than he had always thought. His new birthday was October 27th, 1963. Another interesting twist. Paul had a twin sister who also mysteriously vanished. Paul sought out his biological relatives. He was pleased to find out his cousin Lenny Rocco was also a musician. He had been a doo-wop singer in the 50s. Unfortunately, the entire family was not all welcoming of Paul. He discovered some dark secrets. His mother, Marie, was a heavy drinker, and his father, Gilbert, had been back from the war had come back from the war in Korea, a very angry man. There's evidence that Paul and his twin sister Jill had been very neglected. They were always crying, the family says, and one cousin remembers seeing the babies sitting in a cave. Nobody actually knows what really happened. Whenever the family asked about the twins, they were told they were being looked after by another family member. Paul seems to think that something tragic happened to Jill and that they had to get rid of the other twins. Because how else would you explain only one twin? In his book, The Foundling, Paul describes the twists and turns of his obsessive and sometimes daring search for answers. At one point, he digs up the garden of the house where the Rosenthals had once lived, hoping in vain to find the remains of his twin sister. Two years later, Paul, has, Paul and his adopted parents finally made peace. Dora gave Paul a photo album that contained letters from the efforts. Unfortunately, Paul's father, Chester, has passed away. Him and his mother, Dora, now actually share a birthday of October 27th. Paul is as determined as ever to find out what really happened to Dora's son. He still has a private investigator working on the case and says the next step is to exhume a body. In fact, he wants to exhume two bodies. Two leads to possible the biological Paul and his twin sister. Paul said that this story is nowhere near finished. He would like to hear from anyone who might have information about his, this case through his website, which I will have linked in the show notes below. All right, you guys, so that is the case of Paul Joseph Franzak. It's a bit of an interesting one because it's not like a huge murder case. Well, I mean, I guess it kind of is. Like, it's just wild. Can you imagine not knowing that a you were kidnapped and then finding out that you weren't kidnapped but that you were seriously neglected and just having so many twists and turns like while I was researching this case I was even like whoa wait what's going on I felt like I was like watching a movie or something without watching it but I felt like this was supposed to be a movie like something made up like it is just honestly insane it's mind-blowing and to find out that you have a twin sister who you don't even know if is still alive, and that could be the very reason why you were neglected in New Jersey. But to be from Tennessee and end up 
in a stroller in front of a store in New Jersey is a long haul. Like, that's a big, that's a, f- a long time away. Like, th- it's not like that's necessarily close. Like, they, they definitely went to the expense and to tell the family that they were being looked at by another family member. It's just all sorts of crazy. And I know, I'm sure Paul, you know, he's glad he found out what he did. But at the same time, he's probably so relieved that he grew up with Dora and Chester and that they adopted him because he just has such, he was gonna have such a better life with Dora and Chester than he would have had with um, his birth parents Marie and Gilbert so I mean poor Dora and Chester though to go through that and to actually never find their son and to always wonder if you know if Paul was actually in fact biologically theirs or if they just you know wanted their son back so bad that they just kind of you know took the FBI's word for and said yep this is my son and just go and never ask any questions and just kind of leave it as is I mean, it's definitely, that family has definitely been through it. I do, I seriously do wonder where um, the biological Paul Franzak is. I wonder if, you know, he's still alive, if he was, like, sold off in the black market or, like, adopted um, by somebody in another country or if that nurse, I wonder, because it could be a case where, you know, the nur- the girl playing the nurse um, went through a traumatic you know, maybe their delivery where she lost the baby, like a stillbirth or a miscarriage or something tragically happened and the baby passed away or something like that. And she just, you know, people get crazy and obsessive and they go out and steal a baby to make themselves feel better. So it could be a thing where maybe Paul, the real Paul, um, is he grew up with somebody else and maybe he's heard about this and just never wondered or thought maybe this could be him because I mean think about it it's not like he was abducted at six months old this he was abducted as a newborn baby so of course whoever took him would have if they decided to take him and keep him um they would have newborn baby pictures they would have pictures of all that and so I mean I guess you would never really question if that was really um you or not so or like if that they were biologically your parents or not I don't know so many things could have happened he could you know, they, he could have died, or, I mean, I don't know. There's so many, so many possibilities, and, and I'm sure Paul Franzak is probably, you know, like, he, he's not, and he is determined to find answers on what actually happened, and, you know, I give him so much credit for that, and I respect that. Um, he, you know, he could have easily just said, you know, I found out that I wasn't actually yours, and that's it. He, but he, you know, loves and respects his parents so much that he wanted to do this mostly because he wanted to find their biological son, which I give him so much credit for. So that is it, you guys. That is this episode. Let me know what you think about this case. I know I didn't plug my Instagram or social media or anything in the beginning, so I'm going to do that now. So if you please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast on whatever platform you are listening to, that greatly, greatly helps me out. Also, I am on Twitter at TheCrimeVineTO1, and that's where I post a lot of case updates and I talk directly with victims, families or victims. Um, who have survived and I do a lot of victim advocacy over there and then on Instagram I'm at the crime vine podcast and Instagram is like it's one I don't want to say it's one big joke but it is Instagram is just a bunch of memes and you know a light-hearted funny type of thing because this is a very you know dark part of the internet so um, Instagram is definitely not something to be taken seriously it's just definitely mostly memes and sometimes I'll post threads about a case here and there but other than that it's basically just memes. So thank you guys all so much for listening. Um, 
And if you guys are on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. It'll greatly help me out. Um, this Crime Line podcast family is growing, and it's awesome to see. And so many of you guys are so willing to help people out and retweet stuff. And honestly, thank you guys so much for listening and supporting me. And um, really, you're helping the victims out. You're not helping like I don't I don't care if I get fame or anything like that. All I care about is these victims get their voices heard and um, they get justice. So thank you guys so much. And I will talk to you guys in my next podcast episode. So when I did record this episode, I had not found this statement released by Paul Franzak himself, just because his website was not working for me. It wasn't working on any of my devices or anything. So I did want to give you guys this quick update. Um, I found that they did in late 2018, they did find the biological Paul Franzak. And um, due to his wishes, he did not want to be public. He wanted to stay kind of anonymous. So they are respecting the biological Paul Franzek's wishes and did not go public with the story or with any details about him. And they're not going to go with public with any details about him either.